First Peter chapter 3. I guess I'll just have to go ahead and say that I will not be dealing with uh, chapter 3, verse 19 through 21 this morning. Hopefully Steve's uh, not totally disappointed. I, uh, we had talked about it recently, and he thought I was probably going to start it today, but I'm not going that fast, Steve, so I'm still back a few verses, so that's okay. We're going, to be, uh, we're going to be looking a little bit more here at this section 10 through 17. I've kind of chosen to take 10 through 17 as a chunk and we'll just sort of work our way meandering through and, um, and just drawing out some of Peter's main thoughts there. But why don't we uh, start in verse 10 of chapter 3, reading again this section. And we'll ask the Lord to teach us after we read. So 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 10. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, than for doing what is wrong. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word again this morning, we're just so thankful for it, and we pray, Father, that you would take these truths and write them on the tablets of our hearts, and that you would renew our minds. Um, And Lord, you would restore, you would um, convert, um, you would cause us to taste its sweetness. And Lord, uh, we just pray that as we look into this perfect, um, into this perfect word, we'd look into it as in a mirror to look at ourselves. And, and certainly when we get a good glimpse of who we are, Lord, that we would not just go away and forget that. But Lord, what needs to be corrected would be corrected and we would go away uh, seeking to correct those things and to be doers of what we hear. Uh, Lord Jesus, we just want to be well-pleasing to you and we thank you that you are even more invested in this great wish than we are. Uh, Lord, you want us to do well. You want us to flourish. You want us to bear fruit in all things. You want us to know that you are at the right hand of God supplying us every need and resource we need to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so we ask you this morning that by your spirit that you would do what we can't. Um, Lord, many of us are tired. Many of us have come through hard weeks. Um, Some of us have come through easy weeks. Whatever it is, Lord, we we need you no matter um, our mental state, no matter how we even feel. We need you constantly. And Lord, we need you to continually here at New Covenant build this place according to your your will. Um, Lord, we can labor in vain if we don't Um, summon you to build it through us. And so, Father, we ask you that you would do that, Um, that you'd be pleased this morning to come and and do what I cannot. 
Um, Lord, your Holy Spirit would fall and, and fill, fill your people. Thank you for your loving kindness uh, that we know will not leave us without effect this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in this section of 1 Peter chapter 3, I've been focusing on 10 through 17 on Peter's instructions to these Asian Christians, these Gentiles mainly. Um, and I've titled this section, Conditions for Blessing. The reason I did was because at the end of verse 9, Peter says that you are called to a certain holy lifestyle, lifestyle of love, that you might inherit a blessing. And then he undergirds that, quoting Psalm 34, where Peter quotes, For the one who desires life to love and see good days must do this and not do that and the other thing. And so Peter's laying out for us conditions of, of blessing. And there is a, one of the things I'm trying to point out is that there is a cause and effect in the in, in, in relationship in the Christian life. We can't so emphasize justification that we think that our, 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 our efforts toward good or our indulgence in evil doesn't matter. It matters big time. And you probably heard that as we were reading through chapters 10, uh, verses 10 through 17 on the, the word must. You hear that over and over and over, don't you? You must keep your tongue from evil. You must turn away from evil. You must do good. You must seek peace. These things are not an option. Holiness is not an option. Turning away from evil is not an option. And what we're going to look at this morning is the fact that doing good also is not an option. Um, it's, it's common, I think, in reform circles to put the, the, the whole category of good works in a place of option. And, and, and sometimes when you begin to talk about good works or, or, or zealous to, to do this or that for the kingdom or want to live a holy life or those kinds, sometimes that can be almost mocked as legalism. And we want to be very clear <laughs> that obeying God is not legalistic, right? Obeying things that God doesn't teach is legalistic, but obeying God is not legalistic. Doing good is not legalism. Right? Doing good is a right response to the grace of God in your life. Um, God has given us an immense amount of good through Jesus Christ, like an eternal, an eternal inheritance and glory. And, and therefore, we are to live lives of thankfulness. Ben was talking about this morning in the Psalms and how the psalmist would reflect on God's goodness and thank the Lord and then say, I'm going to pay my vows. Well, what's the new covenant application of that or the new covenant filter for that? Well, it's, it's living lives of service and thanksgiving for what God has done for us in Christ. If God has delivered us from sin, then, then we have a life of thanksgiving to live. Um, and... Uh, and it matters, doesn't it, how much we, we take a fresh look at Christ and a fresh look at the gospel over and over so we can remember who we were and who we now are. And what kind of power now is afforded us in Christ by the Spirit to do the things that are pleasing in His sight. You know, at one time it could be said of us that there is nothing good any of us could do. But now in Jesus Christ it can be said we have works predestined for us to do. That's a wonderful thing. You can do things that are actually good that God will reward and call good in the day of judgment. And so we, uh, we, we have, we have a, a lot we can do. And, and, and so we want to look at that a little bit this morning about this emphasis that Peter has on doing good. Now, in 1 Peter, he's already told us in several places about this issue of good deeds. So back in 2.12, if you want to just turn back there, you can see that Peter, after he's laid out our identity in Christ and all of this Old Testament language that applied to Israel but now is ours um, in Jesus Christ, so, so Peter there just defining our identity in Christ and all kinds of wonderful language, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, 
he then gets to something of an application section where he says in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. So he starts on the internal war that you are to wage. And then he goes to the behavior. Verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So, so off, right off the cuff when God is describing who you are in Jesus Christ as his royal priesthood, the most privileged people on the planet because of his grace, in the sense that now we have access to God and we stand before the world for God to proclaim His excellencies, we now are to sort of live this life that is excellent in, in good deeds and, and recognize that these good deeds can bring about the, the conversion of others so that others glorify God in the day when either you're doing these good deeds for them or on that great day of judgment where they will glorify God because of your good deeds done in their lives. And so this is, this is kind of where Peter begins this discussion on good deeds or this emphasis. We see it again in chapter 3, verse 11, the passage we just read. He must turn away from evil and do good. It's also in 3.14, or verse 3.13 rather. Who is there to harm you? If you prove zealous for what is good, right, that Christians... Do good, not because they just have to, but because they want to, but because this is who we are. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Doing those things that are righteous. You think of Jesus talking to the scribes and Pharisees and the others gathered there at the Sermon on the Mount, and he says uh, to, to, to those around him, those who are religious around him, the Pharisees do these kinds of things and they call them righteousness. What do you do more than these? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And of course, that righteousness begins with heart work, right? It begins with heart work, purity of heart and and not being angry. But it also issues forth in good works that shine in such a way that men will see these things and glorify God. You also have verse 14 of chapter 3. I'm sorry, verse 16 of chapter 3. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So, these exhortations to do good, they may at first seem sort of mundane. Right? When we say, well, what are Christians about? We're about doing good. Well, you know, it seems sort of simple. Almost too simple. Um, and it seems something mundane or commonplace, but, but when you consider the context of Peter's day, you might think again. As I mentioned last time, Peter's day was one where Christianity was effectively illegal. Christians were tortured in pockets, and especially in Rome, at the hands of an eccentric tyrant named Nero. Christians would go on to experience systemic persecution under Trajan immediately following Nero. And it gets even worse, horrifically worse, under Diocletian. And yet in this context, Peter will not allow Christians to become hidden and private. So focused on safety and personal comfort and self-preservation that they stop being salt and light. Peter has already said that they are God's priests, who proclaim His excellencies. And that's 
All of you. That's not pastors. That's all of us in Christ. That we are to proclaim his excellencies. And certainly, especially the excellencies of God's calling us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Like those Old Testament priests who were charged with teaching God's word impartially, standing between the Lord and his people, so also we as God's priests are to take God's word and proclaim to this unbelieving world and each other of God's marvelous and excellent grace. And and this is easy to do when you're respected and people will welcome it. it. This would be easy to do. It's far less easy to do when your very identity is illegal. Again, just put yourself in the position where you're, you, 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 know, you, you think about the fact that if you woke up tomorrow morning and coming across Fox News was, was this, this beacon uh, announcement that Christianity now is dubbed illegal. All Christians could be found out, brought before a trial, and, and if found to be so, that you could suffer some sort of fate, maybe even death. I mean, this is the world that these people are in and would be in even more for the first three centuries of the church. And yet, what does Peter tell them to do? Go head for the hills? Right? Go start a commune somewhere else? No, he says, do good. Be about doing good. So we're going to look at this a little bit more today. Before I do this, and it's it's a little risky because I don't want to drag sermons out, but but I want you to track with me here, and hopefully it'll be encouraging. Yesterday, the kids and I and Paige were, um, right after breakfast, we were sitting around the table, and we opened up the Revelation of John. Um, In chapter 1, we were starting to read there, and there are so many wonderful ideas and terms scattered throughout that text not least of which is just this whole depiction of the glorious uh, picture of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Um, But there was one place in chapter 1 that really stood out to me. And maybe I'll just read it real quick. It has to do with this whole idea of good works. So Revelation chapter 1. John is on Patmos there. He's in the spirit on the Lord's day, which in some ways means he was just swallowed up in God and sort of everything else outside of him just sort of stood still and God gave him this vision. And as he's in this state, he hears a voice and it says to John, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. See, this, this person speaking with John wants John to write down what he's about to see for the sake of these seven historical churches and certainly every church and subsequent generations. Well, John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw, not the band at first, but seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the seven lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp 
two-edged sword and his face like the sun shining in his strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore write the things which you've seen, the things which are, the things which take place after these things. And as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So why do I read this passage? It's so tempting to branch off into every little thing that's said in that passage to highlight something of the glory of that text. But two things really, really stood out to me there. The first thing is that we find is that the churches there are described as what? Lampstands. Lampstands. What's the sole purpose of a lampstand? It's to give forth light. To illumine a dark place. This is why lampstands exist. And of course you can remember the Old Testament context of the lampstand being set into the holy place to give light in that area for the priest to do worship and minister. The lampstand in that Old Testament was there to sort of symbolize the light and the holiness and the goodness and the the reality of God's presence. And I want us to realize something as a church that this is who we are supposed to be. We're a lampstand. Did you know that? We, We are a lampstand before the God of the universe and before this watching world. We are a lampstand. This is a defining characteristic of who we are as a church. New Covenant is a lampstand. We are supposed to be shining His presence, representing Him to a world of darkness. Jesus says this, doesn't He, in His own teaching that no one after lighting a lamp hides it under a basket. Right? The the purpose of lighting something is to illumine Everyone who who claims to be a Christian is claiming that they've been lit up by Jesus Christ. Everyone who claims to be a Christian is claiming that they are sort of this this lit candle on God's lampstand. One among many, but certainly there. And this ties in with doing good. Doing good in Jesus' name is in this dark world, rife with evil, shines so brightly when you do it for Christ's sake. So that's the first thing that stood out to me, is just these lampstands. You know, you think about the, the seven churches of the seven lampstands, but you, you have to remember that, that we, we have a lampstand too. We are a lampstand. And the other, and the other the piece leads me to this, that the exalted Jesus Christ is in the midst of his lampstands. He is there. He is there. He's not some weak infant Jesus. He is the exalted cosmic king of the world, Jesus Christ, whose eyes are a flame of fire, who is in the midst of his churches. What, what's he doing there? Well, he's watching, isn't he? He's watching. Over and over in chapter 2 and 3, you hear him say, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. I know your deeds. He knows. 
He knows you can't hide from Him. We can't hide from Him. He knows. And brethren, I'm, I'm, I come to you just with some sobriety here. How are we doing before this exalted Lord Jesus? He is in our midst watching our church. And He's specifically watching how we shine. How bright are we? Are we a place that's, that's known for our good works? Are we a place that's known for our, our desire to be a caring community to others for the gospel? Is that who we are? I think we are in, in so many ways. I mean that. But he knows the deeds of all of you. This is sobering stuff. And again, I don't want this to become a message that goes into chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation. But this is sobering stuff. Jesus sees us, brethren. How is He assessing us this morning at New Covenant? Jesus knows what you do with your time. He knows. He knows. Sobering, isn't it? He knows. He sees. Don't think He doesn't see. He knows if you're asleep. He knows if you're awake and serving the saints. He knows if you're seeking ways to proclaim His truth to the lost around you. He knows if you're in immorality. He knows. So as we think about doing good this morning, be praying that the Lord would encourage us to remember that that we are Christ's lampstand. And you may feel, I don't know, you might feel that your wick is barely burning. And perhaps that's due to apathy. Perhaps it's just due to a grinding schedule that you've had. Sometimes that happens. And I don't want you to despair because that same Lord Jesus that is there to assess and everything is that same Lord Jesus that says, you know, if you've gotten off into the weeds, remember what you did at first, repent, and then come dine with me. I want to eat with you. I don't, I don't want you to go away from me. I want you with me. That's what he says to the Laodicean church. That's such an encouraging thing. Even hard words that comes and says, look, you're not useful to me right now, Laodicea. I want to throw you up. And yet if you repent and you come back, I'll dine with you. I just want, to, I want you to eat with me and I want to eat with you. So just know there's plenty of hope in Jesus Christ. But also know he watches us. So gripping. It's so gripping. So doing good, back in 1 Peter. What do we think of this? This is what Peter says, doesn't he? He must turn away from evil and do good. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Good behavior in Christ, these things. I thought of this passage first, Acts 10.38. You don't have to turn there. Peter is, is, is there preaching, and he says describing who Jesus is. He says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, and I believe this is to Cornelius, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Again, when you think about the Lord Jesus Christ 
you think about a man who is absolutely, tirelessly, selflessly doing good all the time. When you read the Gospels, you should be sort of worn out by the time you're done finishing the, the reading through the life of Jesus, or at least the earthly ministry of Jesus. You, you, I feel tired for him. <laughs> He's there doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Again, doing good seems like such an understatement for the selfless life of Christ. What does it mean? Well, it fundamentally at least means that Jesus actually acted. He did. He was proactively doing. He didn't just think about it. He didn't just understand that there was good to do and brainstorm all the ways that good could be done and never did it. He actually did it. He did good. (laughs) Did is a very active word. It just means you actually put your thoughts to action. Is our Christianity defined by merely thoughts about the Christian life or your practice of actually living out the gospel and doing good? Do you talk about it or do you actually do it? Jesus says, why do you call me Lord and don't do what I say? Don't call me Lord anymore until you get that resolved. If he's Lord, we obey him. And he is Lord. So when we don't act, it's rebellion. It's, it's sin. So do you, do you actually do good? So, again, so many in, 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 the, in the academic world, the theologically academic world, even the reform world, are inactive, yet high-powered theologians who do very little in the cause of, of living like Jesus Christ. Brethren, theological knowledge is no compensation for action. Now, you don't... You don't, you're not supposed to get less truth, right? I mean, truth fuels our action. But truth by itself is not doing, so to speak. It's vital, but it's a means. So he was doing, he was active, and it was good, it was It was beautiful in the eyes of the Lord when Jesus Christ would heal a man or a woman. It was a beautiful thing when someone set free from the oppression of Satan. Something so beautiful about that. The world doesn't see that as a beautiful thing. But God sees it as a beautiful thing. And this is why we do good works, brethren. We do good works because we want people released from the, the oppression of Satan. That, that's, that's, that's who they are out there. Maybe some of you in here. That's, that's what's going on. Is they have a tyrant far worse than Stalin could ever be that's always on their backs telling them, oh, you're living the right way. You're living the right life. You're, you're going the way to fulfillment. All the way he's taking them to, to outer darkness with himself. And this is why we do good works. We do good works to shine like, no, there's a way out. Right? And we do that in kindness and kind words and we do that in and engaging with our neighbors, we, we do it in so many ways. But this, is, this was fundamental. Jesus went about doing good to those who were oppressed by the devil. Brethren, I hope you have a view that that's who people are outside of Jesus Christ. Peter tells us back in chapter 2, verse 12, you can look at it again, a little bit about the nature of biblical good works. 
Let me read it again. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So this tells us several things. Again, they're deeds, they're not just thoughts. They are observable to the unbelieving world, those that are not currently glorifying God. So how much time are you spending, the opportunities you're taking to actually tell people who don't know Jesus about Jesus? This 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 is in tandem with good works. Good works aren't there just so that people go away thinking you're a really nice person. Right? Now, maybe you're at work and you're, you've, got a, you've got an agenda and a plan and a long-range view and you're trying to drop little things here and there, but, but you've got to get to why you are who you are, right? Or else you're going to be taking all the glory the whole time. Jesus says, let your work shine in such a way that it points to the Father and not to yourself primarily. So they are done to be observed before the unbelieving world. They are done for God's glory. Motivation is, is important, right? Again, Jesus says, do it in such a way. And again, they're done to witness to Christ so that they may be moved to glorify God. This is why good deeds are not mere philanthropy or something like equivalent with the Peace Corps. Not biblical good works. They are not. This is why I don't see Mother Teresa as, as, as diligent as she may have been to alleviate poverty as doing something truly good in the Lord's eyes. Why, why do I say that? Well, I mean, she, she didn't believe that Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, who claimed to be the exclusive way to God, she claimed that sincerity in any religion was acceptable to God. And therefore, in her book, called Life in the Spirit, she says, quote, We never try to convert those who receive aid from missionaries to Christianity. But in our work, we bear witness to the love of God's presence. And if Catholics and Protestants, Buddhists or agnostics become for this better men, simply better, we will be satisfied. (laughs) Brethren, this woman is in the dark. How can she say this? She's withholding from them the only real life there is. It's damnable heresy. She doesn't believe the Bible where it's said that no one is good. You can't make dead people better in God's eyes. They need to be raised from the dead, don't they? And that's what the gospel does. The gospel's the power of God unto salvation. Unless people repent, they'll perish under his righteous wrath. How could you ever be satisfied with just making someone a better person? And she's a, she's a paragon of virtue in the, in the world's eyes. You know that? A lot of Christians think that's how you do it. I'm telling you, that's not how you do it. Maybe some of the acts themselves, but you do it as bearing witness to the Lamb of God. When you do good works, you tell them, look, I'm only doing this by the grace of God, you know. 
Back five years ago, before I was a Christian, I would never have done this. Jesus Christ saved me from sin. This is why I'm here. This is, this is, this is, how, this is how Christians do good works. So good works, what, what, what kind of things are we talking about? Well, they could be subtle things. It could be those things that, that make one just a good citizen, like paying taxes or obeying laws of the land. I don't want to minimize that. that that's something, right? Peter actually brings that out. You don't want to cause, you do it because you don't want to bring offense and sort of a, a negative light upon you as a representative of Christ. Right? You don't pay your taxes, you get in trouble. That looks bad on Jesus' name. It just does. Peter clearly says that to be subject to every human institution and don't use your freedom as a covering for evil. Well, that would be one way you do it. This will draw negative attention to you. Doing good may be in a marriage relationship where a believing woman, again, Peter brings this out, trusts the Lord to submit to her unreasonable and harsh husband. That can be doing good. And she does it because she knows the Lord always watches her and she knows that this submission to her husband might mean his conversion. Again, good works done in such a way that the husband sees your good works and what does he do? Glorifies God. That's, that's Peter's whole thing. We live in an evangelistic enterprise right now. We're about shining the light of Jesus Christ. It could be a faithful husband living with his, 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 his wife who's being difficult or rebellious and hardened and he seeks to dwell with her in understanding and honor her as God's given wife to him. And these are no small, I mentioned them earlier at the top here, I don't mean to minimize it. This is hard to do in a marriage relationship. When you've got one person and not on the same page with the other, in terms of them, you know, living before the Lord. One's in rebellion, one's following the Lord. This one who's in the Lord has got a hard road. I'm not minimizing that. But they've got to have a big picture view. That doing good in that context applies. It could be being a diligent employee who seeks to honor Christ by honoring his boss and seeking the success of the company. Think of this, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. With good will, Paul says, render service knowing that whatever good thing each one does... This he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And that's in the context of slaves and masters. Right? What with goodwill render service, knowing that whatever good thing each one does. So you make decisions for the good of your master as a slave. And God recognizes that and will reward you. He won't forget one, one act of service of goodwill toward your master, even if he's unruly. This is the gospel. This is, this is the, the, or I should say, the outworkings of the gospel in our lives. This is living like Jesus Christ. But even in just our regular employment, we're seeking ways to, to better, to make our bosses look better, and God doesn't forget any of that. 
He doesn't forget any of it. No, nothing, nothing, nothing is secular in that sense. Sometimes we think it is, though, you know. It could be the, the dad and mom who seeks to train their kids in the fear of the Lord day in and day out. Right? That's what, again, Paul says in Ephesians. Fathers, train your children. It's a good thing to do. Wonderful thing to do. It could be just, it could be giving, giving money. Think of the woman with an alabaster perfume. She, she, she saved her money, she bought this alabaster perfume, and she, she gives it to Jesus for his burial. And there's so much in that passage we could bring out, right? But the disciples thought that she was foolish for spending all that money on Jesus. Isn't it ironic, you know, just the woman who was marginalized more than the, than the men had more faith and clarity than these men who were with him. That, so much in there. But what does Jesus say about her when she brings this alabaster vial? Jesus said, let her alone. She's done a good deed to me. And then he says, she has done what she could. I love that. You know, Jesus isn't asking you to pack up and go move to Lebanon to do a good thing. He's saying, do what you can. That's what he's saying. This woman, she did what she could. And she will be inscribed in the pages of Scripture forever. You may be handicapped and only able to sit, knit quilts for the homeless, or pray. You may be able to just send a card to encourage someone. You're doing what you can. But you're doing good when it's for the Lord's honor and not your own. And when it's for the good of others. Acts 9. Turn there if you have Bibles open. Acts chapter 9. This is Peter traveling on and, and preaching and ministering different places. And right now, I think he's in Lydda, which was close to this place called Joppa. And in verse 36 of chapter 9, in a place called Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. By the way, Paige was telling me, I think, was that you telling me, babe, about in Africa? There were all these, what were named, what were they over schools? Schools for kids? Yeah. A lot of them were, were, uh, were named Dorcas. What do we know about this woman, Tabitha? This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness. Abounding with deeds of kindness. You know, doing a deed of kindness is a good thing. Abounding with deeds of kindness, that's a very different thing, isn't it? That's an overflowing, like, oh, what did Tabitha do? Oh, yeah, that, that figures, I, I figured it was her who sent that, or I figured that was her who made that call, or oh, I, I figured that was her who made those quilts. She just abounded in kindness. And what is kindness? Kindness is, it's like goodness expressed, isn't it? It's, it's goodness expressed to others. 
And she, she was all about others. And this woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. Peter, Luke wants us to know this was constant for her. She was a noteworthy person. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Since Lida was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, Do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and the garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. What a picture, isn't it? Just here, this, woman's, this woman's life's work. You could see it. It was right there. What about you? People are there at your funeral, and they're thinking, what, what do they point to? Do they point to anything? Is there anything there? When you're gone, will you be missed in this sense? That's a question, isn't it? Weeping, showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. And it's not, again, this isn't, you know, this isn't free Burma Rangers. This is tunics and quilts. Right? In the Lord's name, that the Lord enshrines in his word for us. That's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5. I know Steve wants to preach this message. How to be a good widow or something like that. He's got a good title for it. I don't remember what it is. I think the gist of it, though, is how to be a good widow. Well, in order to be a good widow, you have had to have been a good wife. 1 Timothy 5, 9-10, Paul says, as he's ordering the church there through instruction, giving this to Timothy to, to speak, he says, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation of good works, reputation, reputation of good works. Like When that widow pops in your mind, you're thinking of this and this and this and this and this and all these good things that she does. And if she has brought up children, and if she has shown hospitality to others, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work, Women, this is the pattern of a godly woman. This is the pattern of a godly woman. She shows hospitality, so she opens her home. She extends herself to the saints. She she sees those in distress around her and devotes herself to every good work. Ladies, is this what you want? 
Is this what you strive for in the measure that you can with little kids and whatever season of life you're in? The Lord knows all that. Right now, your main focus is raising these kids up. But let me encourage you to still, even with these kids, always be mindful of, of opportunities with these kids to help others. What a great testimony that is to these kids. Don't use schooling and all of that as just an excuse to never do any good works. Again, do what you can in faith. Maybe it's writing letters to our missionaries with your kids, sending pictures to the to those refugee children that we support. These all things, all these things are good. But is this who you are? Is this what you want? Paul says, he goes on after this, and he highlights young women that go about as busybodies. <laughs> Gossips. Think about that in our day. Women are primarily pushed to focus on their image, just on their physical appearance. And that becomes the priority. Paul says, true godly women live their lives for others. Young men in Titus as well. Young men, Titus chapter 2, verse 7. Starting in verse 6. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. Young men, you know? You don't just sit there with your buddies talking about this and that while the women are around doing everything. Young men are to be busy about doing good for others. Could be in all kind of different ways. Good deeds. A lot of you young guys in youth group need to recognize and start to think it this way. If you claim to be a Christian, you're to be, you're to be thinking about what good you can do for others. How you, can, how, how you can express the light of Christ in your life as a young person. Paul tells them, it's not an option. Young men, be an example of good deeds. Don't be self-absorbed. It's the hardest thing for single guys. In Titus alone, in the book of Titus, and I'll leave this to you to go to study, but I think it's six times alone. In chapter 116, 27, 214, chapter 3, verse 1, 8, 14, and, and chapter 3, verse 14, Titus mentions good works. It's through the whole book. And there's no question, only in three chapters, it's no question that we are to be people more and more engaged in meeting the needs of others. Pressing needs. And we're to be zealous for them. We're to be looking for them. We're to be excited about them. Isaiah 58 God is utterly exhausted, so to speak, with the religious hypocrisy of his people. What we we have in in Isaiah 58 is very similar to chapter 1. But in Isaiah 58, 
he is speaking to people that are very religious. Do not think that you'll be pleasing to the Lord if you are only religious and you care nothing for others. If you don't have love and you don't care for others and you don't want to see them freed from the oppression of Satan and you're not taking positive steps toward that, you're probably just religious. Listen to this. Isaiah 58, verse 1. Cry loudly, God says to Isaiah. Cry cry loudly, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. Oh, what is it? Maybe maybe they've stopped going to church. Maybe they've stopped going to the temple. Maybe they've left off the sacrificial system. Maybe they don't fast like they used to. No, they're doing all of those. Verse 2, Yet they seek me day by day and delight to know my ways as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God. They ask me for just decisions. O Lord, bless this. O Lord, bless that. O Lord, guide us here. Guide us there. They delight in the nearness of God. They say, why have we fasted and you do not see? We've humbled ourselves and you do not notice. Behold, on the day, and God says, behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire. They think that the religious part is what scratches God's back. But that has nothing to do, ultimately, with what God really requires or what He wants. He says, Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. You can hear their prayers probably. Lord, prosper us, bless us. All this language, right? Meanwhile, they go and they grind their laborers to powder. Greed. You can read James 5 for that. You strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. God says, is it a fast like this which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? In other words, the Lord's like, all this ceremony and all of this, this, this pomp and you laying out yourself and ashes and this and that. Meanwhile, you, you hate your laborers, you hate your neighbors, you, you, you oppress, you strike with the fist. The Lord says... Is this not the fast which I choose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness? Isn't that what I really want here? Isn't that what you're for? As the people of God, don't we have the light of God? Don't we have the gospel of God? And if we have the gospel of God, don't we have a certain stewardship with that gospel to go and loosen the bands and the bonds of wickedness? Well, how does that happen? It doesn't happen naturally. We we can't go around and just strong-arm people into this. We go about by preaching. We go about in love. And, and we go about finding those who are in chains and we, we seek to loosen. And, and when we fast and we pray, this is what we pras- fast and pray for. We don't fast and pray to, to, to earn some righteousness with God. We fast because we want God to loosen the bands of wickedness. Why we, why we started the, 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 the quarterly fasting and prayer times is not so that we can be the fasting church. It's so that we can see people trapped in wickedness be loose from wickedness. That's why we do it. And, and God is pleased to use things like fasting and prayer to bring that about. 
And we have to believe that and live out of that. And God wants us to because that reflects his own heart. When God sees a world perishing in sin, he gives us his, his, his own son. Right? When we see a world perishing in sin and wickedness, we need to give of ourselves and we ask God, please do this in our midst. That's what it is. That's what God wants. He wants wickedness loosed. He wants yokes undone. He wants the oppressed to go free. He wants to break every yoke. Every yoke that chains people from the knowledge of God. Everything that, 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 that society does that brings about murder. I mean, that's why we're so involved in Piedmont Women's Center. Because abortion has to be the apex of oppression in our day. Or human trafficking. We haven't been really involved in that yet. We've done a little research. We haven't done anything. Maybe some of you want to do that. Do that. This is Isaiah 58. This is what God wants. We can start to fast and pray for that. Or how about just dividing your bread with the hungry, verse 7. Bringing the homeless poor into the house. Well, you say, well, you know, people in our day, they're homeless people, they're all entitled. Well, most of them probably are. Once you find one, once you find one that the Lord will, will, will bring about a relationship with you and then begin to bring them in and begin to work with them so that they can be stable. Why don't you do that? Why don't you seek it out? Why don't you do that if you can? This is what the Lord wants. Divide your bread with the hungry. Bring the homeless poor into the house. When you see the naked, cover him. And not to hide yourself from your own flesh. These people are made in God's image too. Well, what happens when we do this, when we live this way? Well, as Peter said, we'll be blessed. In Isaiah's day, this is how he expresses that blessing. Verse 8, Then your light will break out like the dawn, and your recovery will speedily spring forth, and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear God. As you're doing good works, as our church is doing good works, we will have God's protection in all kinds of things that we don't even know about. He'll be our rear guard. He'll watch us. He's with us. And the, the best part of it all Verse 9, then you'll call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. Here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, we can all talk about how bad the world is. Can't we? We can all point. But that was all us too. At one time. Stop pointing and start praying and fasting that the Lord loosens bonds. Brethren, He will. He says, pray, and I'll say, here I am. I'll do it. You just have to trust Him. You have to take this seriously. Oh, so many of you, so many of you do this. So many of you do this. But for those of you who don't, get a grip on this. And let me end here. You can't preach Isaiah 58 without going to its corollary, Matthew 25, can you? Matthew 25, verse 31. It's worth just reading the passage. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep. From the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. But then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, 
inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? How does he know they're sheep? How does he know? How does he know they're sheep? There's nothing mentioned about justification by faith alone in this passage. Does it undergird everything? Yes. Is it here? No. How do you know someone's justified? How do you know, some, how do you know that the gospel's actually come to take root in someone's life? How do you know? I mean, have you ever looked at Matthew 25 and said, gosh, do I do that? Is this me? He says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry? And when did we feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? You think about that? These people that you helped, did you know that that's, you're helping Jesus Christ? Can you picture that? This, you know, person over here that looks kind of, you know, unkept and, and, and just weathered and hardly any teeth, but you go and you help them in Jesus' name. You're helping Jesus Christ in some way. You might think, well, he says it's to the least of these, my brethren. Well, that's true, but how do you know they won't be? How do you know they won't be one day? How do you know they won't be through this good work? How do you know that? You don't know that. Maybe it's the, the food and the clothing and the visiting in prison, these kinds of Maybe that's what'll bring them. When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? They ask. And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, the extent to which you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them you did it to me. Jesus Christ takes personally every good work you do, no matter how little, no matter how big. Verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? Because I was hungry and you gave me nothing. That's sobering. (laughs) That's how you're assessed. You will be assessed on the day of judgment by your works. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. It's sad. These people in prison that need a visitor. Real believers in prison that need visitors. Real believers that are in prison in other countries right now that would love some letters from you. Whatever it is. And then these goats will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or or, or stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you. They're like, well, I didn't see you anywhere. Jesus said, I'm in the prison, and, and I'm under the bridge. Right? I'm in your neighborhood. Yes, yeah, not me physically, but it's, it's still me. I take personally everything you don't do. He says, Then I will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is not a matter of losing some blessing in this life, brethren. Is it? And let me just say, again, so many of you, I'm so thankful for the things that over the years the Lord has 
is given to us to do, just these good works that the Lord has given. Miracle Hill has been such a blessing. Renewal has been such a blessing. Piedmont Women's Center, such a blessing. Door-to-door evangelism, such a blessing. But let's continue to excel still more. Right? Let's continue. Let's see what the Lord will do. The Lord says, here I am. What do you want to do? So I want you to think of that. Steve and I know what we're supposed to do. What are you supposed to do? Think of that. Don't be, don't be despairing about it, but think about it in the sense of just optimism. Lord, what, what do you have for me? And tomorrow when you start the week, just start out by knowing, like, I'm, I'm here, Lord, to represent you and to be faithful and, and to give myself for others here and there. Could be, could be a coworker that just needs a smile and, and, and just, I don't know, just maybe you need to tell him you're praying for him or something. I don't know. Whatever it is, just to stir the pot. Whatever it is, just to, to shine a little bit of light of Christ. Anybody and everybody can do this, and all Christians must do this. You must do good. We're the lampstand. We're the only light the world has. All right, well, as, I've, as I said last week, it's probably worth saying today for some of you who, think, who, may, who may not understand me rightly. Good works will never save you. Good works will never make you right before the Lord. By any amount of good works and being religious, this will not gain you favor with God. It's only when you come to terms with your own sin, repent of your sin, and trust in Jesus Christ that you'll get the righteousness from God that you need to be right with Him. And then after this, you will be filled with the Spirit and subsequently live a life Trusting in the Lord and continuing to issue forth in good works. So you're not saved by good works, but you are saved for good works. And that's the great difference. And that's what separates Christianity from every other religion. Right? We get heaven now, in that sense, and we live out of that glorious reality. Whereas everybody else is thinking they've got to work and hope for heaven. Oh no, the Lord Jesus worked and he gained heaven for us. And now we live in light of that. Let's pray. Father, help us to be people zealous for good works. More and more, Lord, may there be instances and realm posts and prayers where people are focusing on this person or that person or this person in distress or this person in need and and all hopes, Lord, that, that you will work in their lives and on the day when you visit them through us, they will glorify you. Or at least at some point in their lives, they'll reflect on the goodness and the kindness shown to them by Christians and come to you. And Lord, that we would not grow weary in doing good. Lord, help us to do good all the way to the end. And certainly do it fueled by the gospel, fueled by who we are in you fueled by the amazing prospect and, and, and miracle of what you can do through meager efforts. That's a wonderful thought. Jesus, you teach us this in the, in the Gospels with loaves and fishes. Lord, help us not to see you in a small way, but as the, the, the God who is called the Lord of hosts, who dwells in eternity whose glory is above the heavens. Lord, for any of my brethren here this morning who, are, who have been asleep or 
Lord, have been become self-sufficient. Lord, we pray that you would reveal that to them and they would just turn from it and find you there waiting, knocking at the door, wanting to sup with them. Oh, Lord, you're so gracious to us that you invite us in. Lord, for anybody who doesn't know you here, we, we pray that, that you would just shine forth your light in their mind and heart. They would see simultaneously their great sin and need and you as a great Savior. Lord, be with us now as we fellowship and enjoy this gorgeous day that you've made. In Jesus' name, amen.